Hi, my name is Aisha Small. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Youth in Education podcast, where I interview interesting guests to explore developments in education, research and policy that affect young people, primarily in the UK. This podcast is brought to you by the Youth Think and Action Tank, LKM Co. Hello and welcome to this edition of the LKM Co Youth in Education podcast. In this episode, Aisha and I continue our discussion about the early phases of conducting a research project, from research design to conducting a lit review and establishing your research questions, making sure that your research builds on the existing body of evidence around you. We then get on to talking about some of the nuts and bolts of conducting research, picking your methods, whether they're quant or qual, and some of the relative benefits of both types of technique. At one point, Aisha and I also get chatting about the standard model of physics. There's pretty much nothing we won't happily discuss on this podcast. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoy. LKM co-believes society should ensure all children and young people receive the support they need to make a fulfilling transition to adulthood. Find us at lkmco.org. Can we listen to it now? Okay, so Sam, we're here following up from the previous episode. Uh, you've returned from your holiday of sun. Yeah. I won't say the other things. <laughs> That's just sun. <laughs> um, uh, picking up on research questions. So do research questions ever change after a project has started? That's a good question. Um, yeah, I think in honesty, most people present research as though you set out with a fixed set of questions and you answer them and you came away. The truth is that often things do shift around a bit. Um, I think research questions can change for good reasons and for bad reasons. I, I suppose starting with the negative, so if we end in a, in a happier place. Um, sometimes research questions can change during the course of a project just due to mission creep and if you don't keep your eye on the ball enough. What do you mean by mission creep? So. I suppose like any project, your, your research questions are basically your statement of what you're aiming to do. And like, you know, like an infrastructure project or anything, if you, if you don't keep a tight enough rein on things, you can, end up kind of, you can end up going beyond the scope of what you originally set out to do. So for instance, you might, uh, the most common thing is that you set out with actually quite a specific research question. So you might want to look at some of the explanatory factors behind the reason why a particular um, ethnic group does particularly poorly at a particular stage in education, for instance, and there's there are existing research reports that look at those sort of questions. And if you're not careful, you might end up looking at multiple groups or looking at uh, multiple stages of education when actually the brief or the idea might have just been to look at those very specific points because everything is connected um, and often, you know, causal factors, for instance, that relate to one group might also relate to others. Or the literature you start to look at might not just look at one group, it might look at multiple groups. And so you, you, you always end up being hit with data that relates to a slightly broader set of stuff. And it's really hard to say to yourself, we're only interested in this group. There's other interesting stuff going on here, but we only want to know about this group, for instance. All these types of explanations, we're only interested in these types of explanations. Um, those are all the things that your research questions will state for you really clearly. Um, but if you don't go back to them, I feel like almost every week in a project you should pop back to your research questions and just make sure you're still actually answering, answering them. So it sounds really obvious, but actually, yeah. Yeah, I think it's interesting because research questions in the way are your, they're like your guiding light, aren't they, for the project. So yeah. you, 
I think it's a good idea to keep revisiting them, just mm. in the same way that we look at the project overview and the project plan to make sure we're sticking to time or whatever. Yeah. And also uh, the research questions, I guess you have to keep checking that they're still relevant and also that you're actually answering or doing what's necessary to be able to answer or address them. Yeah, definitely. And that's also the reason why they might change sometimes or shift. You, you might set out to look at uh, a particular question and then realise that the literature looks at a slightly wider set of factors because they're all linked together and it just wouldn't make sense to look at one in isolation from the others and so you might broaden your research questions to also look at, at those sorts of factors. Um, you might, for instance, start to look at a study in one particular part of the country and then realise that actually this part of the country doesn't stand out in isolation. It shares similar issues or similar solutions are working in other places and it would only make sense to look at those as well. And providing you've got the time and resources, it makes sense to kind of broaden the research questions or broaden the scope. So there are good and bad reasons to, for your research questions to shift around. I think if they respond to what's going to be most constructive for practice and policy... Um, if they respond to what the existing research base is telling you, like, you know, you need to look at this too, everyone else has ignored it so far, you need to look at this too, then that's a good reason to maybe shift your focus. But if you just sort of lose track of what it is you are setting out to look at, that's not such a great, a great reason. And in truth, you know, that does happen sometimes. Um, so you just mentioned the existing literature, uh, or evidence base, I should say. Mm. So it's a good time to ask you what's the relationship between literature review for a project and the research questions? Mm. Yeah, I almost feel like they there's a bit of a circular relationship, or there's certainly there are certainly instances where a lit review will shape your research questions, and other instances where you'll have your research questions, and then the literature review review is the first stage in answering them. They're actually kind of interrelated, so. You might, for instance, go in and say, okay, this, this research project we want to know. Um, we want to explore five detailed case studies of promising solutions to this particular problem. We've got to look at the literature first to look at the kind of solutions that exist already. Um, and then we can start to kind of, then we might have some more specific research questions about each of those techniques, each of those solutions that we can then explore in detail. There's other instances where you might come in with tightly defined research questions in the first place and then the lit review will simply respond to those. Um, you know, you might want to know about the top five top five factors influencing something um, or you might want to know what kind of solutions exist and you go to the literature first up to answer those. Your research questions and what's often the first stage in any research project, which is a bit of a look through the existing literature, are quite closely interrelated. Can you give me an example for one of your, mm. you know, a project that stands out for you? Mm. Um, so we've got an upcoming report for the Department for Education, um, which is looking at school cultures and practices that support the attainment of disadvantaged pupils. Um, we started with a set of um, hypotheses or research questions for things that we that we knew just. Uh, from our existing, the existing work that we'd done were important factors to look into. We then went to the literature and found additional factors and worked those in. So we set out with some idea of what it is we wanted to look at. We then went to the literature and that filled in some gaps or added existing things that we should look at. And then that gave us our final set of, of questions or things to explore in detail in the case studies that we then went to do in, in individual schools around the country. Okay, that's good. So 
Um, that brings us nicely to how do research questions influence the research tools. Mm. So you mentioned um, that you know you had some questions, then you went to literature review, had to refine them a little bit, and then you mentioned one particular type of tool, which is a case study. Yeah. Uh, so could you explore that a little bit more, please, Sam? So I think, for instance, the reason and that project that we conducted case studies within schools, so we've spent two days in, in a number of schools around the country, um, is that we wanted to know the detail of how, of how individual cultures and practices actually worked in schools, how they were put together and what they, what they looked like. So we found, for instance, that when we, we, we identified some themes that we knew were important because existing literature, for instance, tells you that strong leadership and management or a culture that permeates through an entire school from top to bottom is really important for supporting the attainment of disadvantaged pupils. Okay, so you've got... We then had a research question of whether that differed between schools. In schools with different levels of performance, did you see a difference in that culture? Um, that sort of research question needs a really detailed study, um, gathering rich new empirical evidence to go into a school and see what those cultures actually look like and, and, and how they vary. Um, we know that there's non-existing evidence or data that we can draw on to answer that kind of detailed question. We needed to go into schools to explore that. So why is a, could you explain what the difference is between, say, a case study, mm. a focus group, mm. uh, what other thing would be similar to that, individual interviews, for example, and why you might choose each of those particular things or use them in conjunction? Mm. So in this case, a, a case study, for instance, is often a kind of an umbrella term for a range of different methods. So on this project, the case studies that we conducted in schools included interviews with staff, um, they also included focus groups with parents and teachers. Um, so that's, those sorts of tools will get you people's own perspectives on a particular set of questions. What they don't necessarily give you is a slightly rawer um, observation, direct observation of what's actually happening. So we supplemented that with um, lesson observations and just a lot of time spent in each school looking at what's kind of happening in the playgrounds and in the dinner hall, um, you know, popping your head around just to, to actually see directly if the sorts of things that parents, teachers, pupils are describing seem to be reflected in reality um, or to see how it might be interesting that their perspectives differ slightly. So a case study can actually be a bit of a wrapper for loads of different techniques. How long do we spend in a case study, generally speaking? So you're going in to see the ethos of a school, how long would you spend in a school? So we spent two days conducting these case studies. I think uh, in terms of when, when you're looking at something like a case study, particularly if you're looking at quite thorny questions like an organisational culture, trying to describe that in detail, there's always a case for spending you know, a really, really large amount of time because it takes... Or anyone who's ever worked in an organisation for years and years knows that you never kind of stop learning new things about it. So you, case studies are often very, very detailed pieces of work that need quite a lot of time. But in, in the case of this project, there was an additional element where the case studies were comparative. So we weren't just conducting one detailed case study of one thing. We were looking at similar themes across a range of different case studies. So that's why they were quite time-bound. Um, so they were, were you conducted. looking for particular indicators? You know, I, as you said, it's difficult mm. to... How does one observe a culture? Mm. How do you describe it? I think that's kind of... That's what I'm getting to in this, mm. in this point. Like, how, yeah. how do you me measure that? On uh, What tools help you to do that? Yeah. In a, 
in a way that's consistent because we talk about, I mean, how many schools was, were involved? It was several. Yeah, we looked across a total of 23 yeah. primary and secondary schools. And again, it comes back to the literature and the relationship between the literature review and the research questions because we identified from, we identified a kind of nine broad themes that capture different ways in which school culture and practices work. So all the different areas in which a school works, the things that it does and the, the aspects of its culture, from leadership and management through to what happens in classrooms, to how parents are engaged, to how the budget and finances are run, how the school is governed, for instance. We then use the literature to identify kind of concrete indicators of what a supportive culture, a culture that supports the attainment of disadvantaged pupils, look like. So in really, really broad terms, what you might expect to see among schools where attainment is high. Um, so we then went into the, to each case study with some idea of the concrete practices we were looking to observe. But we were also really open-minded. You know, the literature to date hadn't done a very detailed job of exploring what these cultures and practices actually look like that support the attainment of disadvantaged pupils. So it was one of those projects where we went in with very tightly defined areas of focus, but we were also open-minded in, in each case study that we did to look for new observations that we might not have expected, new aspects of school culture that we might not have been aware of before. Mm. Um, so given the research questions that we had um, and what the literature told us we should probably look at, that helped to put us on track, but we were prepared to kind of go down new pathways at each point, depending on if we, if we got new new insights that hadn't been suggested by the literature. So often when you're looking at literature and research questions, there's that kind of that balance between using your research questions and your literature review to keep you on track and, and focus on what you're trying to find out in the world, but also be open-minded to things that might surprise you. Yeah, especially because um, you know part of the point of doing the research is to add to the existing body of literature and evidence, right? Yeah. So it may well be that uh, you're coming across something that hasn't been covered in literature mm. because no one's thought about it yet or didn't go down a particular line of inquiry and you're adding to that so there might not be there may be something surprising mm. um, in the particular aspect for example yeah definitely and a literature review is in my mind it, it, one of the most useful things it does sometimes is tell you where the gaps are um, and sometimes it can say actually you know what given the research questions you're setting out with we already know quite a lot about that what we don't know much about is this particular sub-element of that of one of your research questions. Why not make that your project? And sometimes that's how things turn out. And then you feel really, really grateful for having looked at the existing evidence base. You know, it, it never really makes sense to conduct any research project without having consulted the existing evidence base because you just run the risk of either duplicating or missing out on opportunities to look at exciting new things. Yeah, like I think about a recent project that we did um, for the Great London Authority. Uh, looking at teacher recruitment and retention mm. and they, were, they specifically wanted to look at uh, factors that would um, help to retain BME teachers and there's a reasonable you know, evidence base for um, some of the difficulties and challenges that BME teachers face the Running Me Trust done some great work on it um, but there was uh, from our survey some really interesting stuff came out that we were surprised by we weren't necessarily looking for it but some really interesting foundings came out and that was uh, so it complemented the existing literature, but there hadn't been anything specifically on what we found, which was interesting. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's, um, it's really nice when you finish a project and feel that you've contributed something new. But there is also, 
there are different views on what science and social science set out to do, and there's a kind of incremental view. But that, to the extent that I think that is kind of broadly accepted, there's that feeling that you want to make it clear how what you found out, even if it takes things off in a new direction or discover something really exciting and novel or shocking and, and new, that you are referring back to what we already know so that people know what to do with this new, with this new knowledge that it either plugs into existing themes or concepts or it's clearly related to an existing problem. Um, and so it's, it's always, yeah, it's really important to show how you're building on something that's, that's come before. Also, uh, you know, for someone like me whose background is not social sciences, you know, I'm more engineering based, like maths and science Natural based. Natural sciences, yeah, yeah. very much so. So uh, I think definitely when I first started working here, it was, um, some things are not quite as clear cut. You know, mm. it's, it's a lot more things to do with interpretation. Um, so I was wondering, you know, you have more of a background in the social sciences. So how would you respond to people saying that, you know, how can you know this is definitely true or it's just how you interpret it and uh, how valid are things? Do you understand what I'm trying to ask you? Mm. I think that things are always up for reinterpretation. The long and short of it is that things are always going to be up for reinterpretation once you've, you know, you've finished off a report or you've finished your analysis. And actually a lot of that extends to the natural sciences as well. Um, I mean, the standard model of physics is currently kind of being redrawn yeah. <laughs> um, and with every new kind of bit of CERN that they build in that underground bunker near Geneva they're discovering kind of particles that say actually yeah, you know what <laughs> yeah so I think the sciences have their and this is what makes the whole endeavour so exciting across the board I think I don't think it's a thing to be worried about but I think the natural sciences have their fair share of reinterpretations that throw you know throw everything out and introduce a new order in terms of what we thought we knew but that's certainly the case in the social sciences I mean, for instance, just this week there's been some criticism of the Department for Education's um, repeated claim that 1.9 million more students now are in good or outstanding schools, and you can start with what seems like a very clear-cut statement of fact. You know, we have, there's a categorisation of schools, there's a number of pupils, what can you argue with? But actually, as with any finding in the social sciences or any, any description of the social world, you know, you look at how those definitions are, are formulated, how things may have changed over time. And they change year on year as well sometimes. Right. Like, I've been really surprised when I started looking at some of the data that comes out of DfE. Mm. And, you know, you go back a few years and then, like, even the report format's not standard. So mm. uh, the particular uh, measurements they might have taken at a particular time, mm. it's slightly different at different years, so you can't entirely mm. compare it and that kind mm. of thing. Yeah. So... And it means something different now to, you know, even, you know, within like a regulatory framework, like an Ofsted framework. Yeah. It, a, a good school means something different now, um, not just in terms of the language that's used, but it will just, you know, we live in a different time now to eight years ago, for instance. So, mm -hmm. and there you have it, you know, you've got a statistical measure, measure attached to quite a simple kind of four-part classification. Uh, what, could, what could be more clear-cut and unarguable? Well, I, I think often we particularly when you're looking at quantitative analysis, we fall foul of this idea that we've, we've found something that can't really be argued with. I think it can, because even if I'm thinking about labels that we give disadvantaged children, you know, when I first started teaching, it would have been uh, FSM, so free school meals. Obviously now that's pupil premium, so technically speaking, you're kind of comparing similar-ish, but actually mm. not, because the criteria for um, children who receive pupil premium is different to when people mm. have free school meals. So even if you're trying to compare 
levels of disadvantage in schools mm. you're not really comparing like with like mm. once you go past a certain point mm. so yeah there is a lot of interpretation things change there is and I mean that said you know in um, in the reports that we write that are often based on a lot of really rich qualitative data um, brought together with quantitative analysis there are measures of validity and reliability in qualitative research so how much weight can we put on based on the number of interviews that we conducted for instance or the way in which we sampled them um, or the degree to which they tended to say the same things or seemed to say very different things how much do we feel that we can put weight on that as a finding and you know if, if a finding that you come across in one focus group is mirrored in lots of the other different types of data that you gather within a single case study then that does lend some weight to saying, well, we might have a funding here, but you know, you've always got to be really clear about how you gathered your data and analysed it. And you can put weight on conclusions. Things can be endlessly reinterpreted, but your interpretation matters as a researcher, and you're entitled to that if it's informed. So, there again, it's one of those difficult balancing acts. The more transparent you are, the better off we all are. So, what, um, we mentioned about... Um Qualitative. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we haven't mentioned any uh, quantitative method methods. Yeah. Uh, so could we explore that a little bit? How we, mm. what kind of things they are relevant for, and how we go about it. In my view, quantitative methods are particularly well set up to give you a description of either a description of a static object, so like the state of play. On a, on a really wide scale basis, so across the whole country or across a really large population of people, or to give you a simple measure of the extent to which two things might be linked together, so a cause and an effect, for instance. Um, they're really well set up for doing that, that sort of work. They require a much greater quantity of data, but they're often also based on far less detail. Um, and, for instance, the questions... A good example of quantitative data might be a survey that's sent out to several thousand people, mm. but it's very tightly defined in that in that data how people can and can't respond. It's not like a focus group where people can respond um, in free form. Quantitative data relies on quite strict categorizations of that data, often in, in a numerical form. So I think quantitative data, in my, in my view, is often a really good place to start when you're trying to look at a trend or an association, um, and then you can unpick that further with other kinds of data. So in terms of, in an ideal world, because obviously things are not always ideal, yeah. but in the timescales of a project, while we're talking, I'm thinking, okay, so mm. you, you do literature review, uh, and then supposing it was going to be a variety of methods in the uh, research, it could be that you might want to do the quantitative stuff first because that may mm. add with the information that you had from the um, literature review yeah. to help you do the more detailed and time-consuming qualitative stuff. What's mm. your view about that? Obviously, you know, it's not always like that, but I'm just mm. hypothesising. Yeah. Yeah, and I think often causal questions are the ones that people are most interested in. And if you look at the kinds of data or the kinds of analysis you need to put together a causal claim... I think often that gives you quite a nice sense of the logic and the way that different methods can work together, including quantitative and qualitative methods. Can you give an example of a causal type? So a causal type question might be, there's been lots of, I think, not particularly helpful interest recently in different types of school and how they perform differently and yeah. whether that's actually, that's the cause of why they achieve differently or if it's actually because they have, for instance, have different pupil populations or are located in different 
parts of the country, for instance. But if you're going to try and look at a causal claim, not a bad place to start is to kind of, okay, can we pull up some descriptive statistics? So if we take all this type of school, uh, kind of state-maintained comprehensives, uh, and then we look at different kinds of academies, you put them together, look at the data for each of those groups, and then you're, what you start with is some broad numerical data which can suggest if there are differences there. But that doesn't allow you to make a causal claim. Neither does it give you much insight into what might be lying so behind be really those differences. Dense, like, what would be the causal claim there? Like the type of school affects how good it is. Is that the causal claim? Yeah, and you know what? I think often when I think this is a, a shortcoming of lots of quantitative research, or often how it's reported, is that it's not really clear what that. What, we're not, we're often not particularly if there's an agenda behind a finding, we're not that interested in why it might be the case or interrogating why. If you want to suggest that one type of school achieves better than another, you almost don't want to really interrogate why. <laughs> I mean, that's been a really, in my mind, that's been archetypical of the, the case for the expansion of grammars, is that when you look, you know, on average, pupils in grammar schools do better than other types of schools. It's because generally the pupil population is wealthier. No, that's well, the a whole, reason, right? Yeah, and if you look at if you look at how if you look at kind of deeper questions than that, like how free school meals pupils do in non-grammar schools um, grammar around school. grammar schools, they do worse than if the grammar school wasn't there. So there's really uh, essentially the 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 performance of that particular type of school is caused by or reliant on else. yeah to some extent it is right. and that's not something i think people are always that keen to go into and so it's easier to leave that sort of finding at the level of the school these school these type of schools just do better than others mm. and to that extent that that claim is true but if you if you if you go in in more detail and go in further then actually what you find is that the causal links are far are far more detailed than that and often they involve other groups other groups doing worse but basically, you know, a quick statistical snapshot won't provide you with a causal claim. Um, you need to do further quantitative work to look at the relative weight of different factors in producing those outcomes. And I think often you need to do some qualitative work as well to interrogate in detail. Okay, so uh, we've covered a number of things uh, about designing the research project. Um, and I think we'll take a break now and then the next bit will be looking at how you actually conduct it. So thanks very much, Sam. Sounds good. good. Hey people, I love making this podcast. If you enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoy making it, there's a few things that you can do. One, subscribe. Press the subscribe button on iTunes or wherever you listen to it. Two, share. Share this episode with somebody who you know will find it interesting or is affected by the specific issues covered. Three, review. Write a review or leave a comment. Also feel free to contact us via the links on the show notes. Thanks a lot. Bye.